Hey everybody, my name is Michael Steuernagel and this is another OIC Sunday Reflection on video and podcast. Art has a way of working and of provoking our sensibility so that we perceive things that we might otherwise fail to perceive. Sometimes things that are right there in front of us but we are blind to them before a right chord or a right stroke or a right use of words shifts our focus towards it. And suddenly it's, it's there in front of us. There are many ways in which an artist can do this. A photographer might open wide the aperture of his lens so that the depth of field in the portrait is changed. And with that skillful use of the right technique, that background that might otherwise be distracting, it becomes this blurred but still beautiful thing. And the face, the features of the one that is being portrayed seem to jump out and and into us and attract our eyes like a magnet. A musician uses silence as much as sounds and notes. And sometimes it is The silence, well-placed and in the right balance with the notes that really holds us. A dancer might move her body in such an unusual way that we wonder at the beauty and wonder of our own bodies, of what we as humans are capable of. A painter contrasts color in such a way that we suddenly see a blueness to the blue or a greenness to the green that we didn't know was there or that even existed before seeing it that way. That is what the Psalms sometimes do for me. It's summer in OIC and every summer we spend time with the Psalms. And the Psalms are a collection of prayers, songs, liturgical chants that we find wedged right in the middle of the Bible. And they are dealing with material that I am very familiar with. Scriptures and the story of God's revelation, words, human emotions and experience, images of architecture or agriculture and nature. Yet as a poet, as a songwriter... The psalmist uses this material in such a way that uh, he sets the elements, she sets the elements in such a way that suddenly my sensibilities, rational, aesthetic, spiritual, sensorial sensibilities, they are guided so that I suddenly see, perceive something that I hadn't at first seen. And as with any form of art, the resulting form has a way of going beyond, beyond what the artist had at first envisioned, because the artist knows only the world as he perceives it. And he cannot control how the one appreciating the art perceives the world and how that perception interacts with the art itself. The artist can certainly not control the way my particularly odd brain processes things. For us as Christians, there is still another element to all of this, and that is 
the creator, right? The creator and creative God as the cosmological springboard for all form of art and, and the Holy Spirit as an inspiration and an interpretation force. And I think we really fool ourselves if we think that this is restricted to art branded as religious or Christian. But I want to get back to the Psalms because all of this is to say that Psalm 95 does, does this to me. Whether through the skill of the psalmist or the holy sensibilities of the spirit or most likely both, the poetry of the Psalms and, and especially today of Psalm 95, they led me to one of those art-inspired tiny epiphanies that we get once in a while. And I want to read it for you and talk a bit about it. So I read for you, Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountains peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. As I read this psalm, as I read it again, it does its art trick on me, mainly through two things, a contrast and a silence, a kind of a striking absence, a contrast and a silence. Now, the contrast is the most explicit. The psalm has a clear division between the first part going from verse 1 to the first phrase of verse 7, and the second part going from the second phrase of verse 7 to the end of the psalm. So the first part is an expression of worship, and it is an invitation into worship. It has a joyous and a thankful character to it as the psalmist speaks of the greatness of God and of us as his people. He invites us to sing and make music to this great God and Lord. But then there's a sudden transition to the second part, which speaks of the stubbornness and the hard-heartedness of the people of God and speaks of God's anger and judgment. And the transition itself has a harshness to it. Today, if only you would hear his voice. Not today, 
hear his voice. Or today, please attend and hear his voice. But that's today, if only you would hear his voice. As if the call itself struggled to be hopeful because of the history of purposeful deafness of God's people. A history which the psalmist then goes on to recall. As I read this psalm again and again, I kept on thinking, what's up with this? Why this sudden transition? This sudden contrast? What is the psalmist trying to do? Is he trying to terrify the people into worship God? A sort of a terror-stricken, joyless worship of those who are just trying to somehow avoid punishment. The episode that the psalmist refers to, that day at Meribah and Massah, is engraved in the history of Israel, and it's not a cozy memory. You can read it about it in Exodus 17, and it's a day in which Israel shows spite and unthankfulness for the God who had just deliver them from slavery in Egypt. Moses had led them out of Egypt. God had opened the sea that they may cross. He had provided with manna, with bread that fell from heaven and with quail in the desert. But now they come to a point in which they are thirsty and they start accusing Moses and God of bringing them into the desert to starve them to death. And Moses pleads with God, and God tells him to strike a stone with his staff, and he does so, and water comes out of the stone. But Moses says that we will call this place Meribah and Massah, because here you struggled with God and you complain. The psalmist refers to this episode, and he recalls the consequence of that hard-heartedness, a whole generation that did not set foot on the promised land. And I read this and I thought, where do I fit in this? How do I relate to this? This contrast, it's kind of like a bucket of cold water on the thankful worship of the first part. And suddenly I feel, in a way, pushed out of the psalm, thrown out of that joyful worship that I had just been invited into. But then there's the silence the absence that struck me in Psalm 95. It is the absence of what the psalmist is not thanking God for. And I can only see it because the psalmist has first given us the contrast. You see, in that day at Massah and Meribah, the people of Israel had just experienced this great deliverance from God. They had witnessed and ingested miracles. Sea opening up and bread falling from the skies. Yet instead of being thankful, they grumbled against God and they accused Moses of bringing them out into the desert only to starve them and thirst them to death. They should have worshipped and praised God for all he had done for them. But instead, they accused him of not caring for them. What struck me with the psalm then is that even though the psalmist references this episode, he doesn't try to remedy it. He doesn't try to fix it by thanking God for what he had done. 
No, in this first part of Psalm 95, there is no thanksgiving for a specific thing. There is no thanksgiving for a miracle, for a specific intervention or deliverance that God has done. The psalmist invites us to worship the Lord for who he is. The rock of our salvation, king above all gods, Lord our maker, our God. The psalmist speaks of things that God has done as creator. And he celebrates that we are his people, the flock under his care. But he stops short of naming specific acts of God on our behalf. And that is the striking absence. It is a silence because we have a tendency to thank God for what he has done for us. And perhaps only when he has done something for us. We're much better on repeating what God has done for us and repeating the rules that we assume he has given so that we may control others than we are on repeating God's goodness revealed in the mere fact that he loved us and chose us. Much more than not having thanked God for opening the Red Sea or sending manna, this is what the people of Israel had messed up back in Masai and Meribah. This is what awoke God's anger as the story goes. And he called, this is in Exodus 17, verse 7, and he called the place, Moses called the place Masai and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? And that is what those names mean, test and quarrel. Is the Lord among us or not? Does God care or not? Is he good or not? Can I trust God's character? This callousness to recognize God's goodness and love as a principle, it is not restricted to the Israelites. The disciples of Jesus, they display a very similar problem with Jesus, even though they, just like the Israelites, had witnessed miracles and wonders. The gospel teller Mark tells us in the chapter 4 of his gospel about how Jesus and the disciples are in a boat crossing the Sea of Galilee and a big storm comes up and the winds raise and the waves beat against the boat and the disciples are afraid and Jesus sleeps. And in despair, not managing to control the boat, they wake Jesus up and they say, Do you not care that we will drown? And Jesus stands up and he calms the storm. He talks to the waters and to the wind. And then he turns to his disciples and says, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? The storm is raging. The boat is taking water. And the disciples are afraid and want God to intervene. And all of that is fine and well. There's no problem in being afraid. There's nothing wrong with wanting God to intervene. Jesus does not reprimand them, actually, for any of those things. He doesn't reprimand them for doubting his action in a specific context, but for doubting him 
Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Teacher, don't you care? Teacher, are you really good? Teacher, do you really love us? And to that, Jesus says, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? It's a wonderful detail here, right? And this is how Mark tells it. He says, Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? He says this after he calmed the storm. And yet he does not say, why were you so afraid? Why were you so afraid of the storm? He says, why are you so afraid? Why are you? At the deepest level, it's not about if we are afraid that God will not do this or that God will not do that. The question is if we trust. If we have faith that he loves us. That whether we make it safe to the shore or drown in the sea, whether we get water or die of thirst in the desert, that his love for us cannot be changed. That he loves us and that cannot be changed. He is God, he is good, and that cannot be changed. The psalmist says of the people of Israel at Masai and Meribah that they have not known my ways. This isn't about following God's law, but about knowing the ways of God himself, that God is with them and acts in mercy and love because that's who God is. He says that they will not enter my rest because our misunderstanding or even distrust of God's character doesn't change his character. God doesn't stop being good or fulfilling his promises. What our distrust does is stop us from being welcoming receivers of that goodness. It's like putting an umbrella over your dry plants when it starts raining. There's a principle here. That I think if it is subtracted from our worship and from our faith, it makes it shallow and it makes it fragile. God's goodness, God's love precedes his acts of salvation towards us and will outlast them all. God's goodness and love precedes, come before his acts of salvation towards us and will outlast them all. Even the cross of Christ can become selfish thanksgiving if we reduce God to his usefulness in my salvation. In which case, I wonder, why do we want to be saved at all? To put it differently, if we don't understand that God loved us before the cross, before the cross. We won't understand the cross. If we understand the cross of Christ as a consequence of my need, 
more than as a consequence of God's love, we don't understand the cross. The cross doesn't create a good God. It reveals a good God. Now this truth, this faith, this declaration that God is worthy of worship and thanksgiving for being God, that, goodness, that God's goodness is worthy of worship quite apart from how powerfully we are experiencing it at any given point, this is not something that we simply acquire and let be. Let's stand in our shelves. This is something that we reaffirm and reenact and sing again and again and again and again and again to keep our foundations firm and keep us from trying to use God rather than enjoy His presence. With this contrast between a God-focused thanksgiving and an us-focused unthankfulness, with this silence about God's specific interventions in order to focus on God's grace and God's love as enough in itself, with these works of art, the psalmist invites us to selfless worship or maybe self-sacrificing worship where we bring ourselves and we need that we need of course to also give thanks for the for what god has done but once in a while we need the prophetic voice of art to focus our hearts and our sensibilities on something that we have been missing come let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountains peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. So may the Lord care for you. May he keep you and guard you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and may you smile at it and may you go in his peace and serve the Lord and serve your neighbor joyfully. Yeah.